This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. Take your Bibles with me today and turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. And again, if you need a bulletin, we're going to go fast in some areas today and we're going to make some notations of things that I believe will be of a blessing for you to know. I don't believe that the average church uh, and the average pastor will bring out the details that I'm going to bring to you this morning. And so uh, it's going to be, I think, informative, uh, maybe things that you've never seen in scriptures before. Everything that we talk about is, is in the Word of God. And uh, I want to make sure that you know that but today we begin a brand new series. It's called The Seven Sayings of the Cross. And this morning I'm preaching on the words of forgiveness. And I pray that indeed it will be a blessing to you. Today, again, we're talking about the first time Jesus spoke. And it is entitled The Words of Forgiveness. And we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse number 27. I want you to follow along with me. There followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep, not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there also, or there were also two others, other male factors, criminals, that's what that word means, led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Now, we're going to be going fast through these first six points on your bulletin. It's important to remember. It's important to understand. So stay with me. Travel with me quick. We're going to be talking about the six illegal trials of Jesus. Some of you may have never heard this before, but Jesus was tried illegally. I emphasize that. I'm going to explain to you why in just a moment. He was tried illegally six times during the night from which he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. The first time that he was illegally tried, 
is found in John chapter 18 and verse number 12 through 13. And the first thing that I want you to understand is that they first took Jesus to a man named Annas from Gethsemane to Annas. And the scripture says this, beginning in verse 12, then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. So understand this, from Gethsemane, they first took Jesus to Annas. From Annas, they took him to Caiaphas. And that's found in John chapter 18 and verse number 24. And the scripture says, now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, before we get to number three, I want you to understand something. They are dragging Jesus to six different places during the night. They wasn't throwing him in the back of a taxi cab or in the back of a limo, as you well know. They weren't giving him the choice of donkeys or camels. They were physically dragging Jesus on foot from place to place all throughout the night. And so Annas sent him to Caiaphas. And after Caiaphas, in Matthew chapter 27, verse number 1, they sent Jesus to the Sanhedrin. The scripture says when the morning was come, and this is talking about the early hours of the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people, look at this, took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. All the chief priests and elders of the people. So from Annas, he went to Caiaphas. From Caiaphas, he went to the Sanhedrin. Number four, in Luke chapter 23, I read for you verses one through five. From the Sanhedrin, they took him to Pontius Pilate. And the scripture says this, beginning in verse 1 of Luke 23, and the whole multitude led them, of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation. This is important because this is one of the accusations. We found this man, this fellow, perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that, himself is a king, all right? There are two, two elements in that one passage. Let's continue to read in verse number three. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. In verse number four, Then said Pilate to the chief priest and to the people, I find no fault in this man. In verse 5, and they were more fierce, saying, he stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. So they took Jesus to Annas, and then to Caiaphas, and then the Sanhedrin, and then they took him to Pilate, and the fifth place they took him during the night, they took him to Herod. And Luke chapter 23 Verses 6 through 7, the word says, When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. 
And as soon as he knew that he belonged under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at the time. So I want you to get this before we read the last point, the last place where they took him. Again, they are shuffling him from one place to another all night long. These, these places that he went did not go by as fast as I'm reading these scriptures. These were intent, agonizing interrogations. And so from Herod, Herod sent him back to Pilate. In fact, the scripture says in Luke chapter 23, verse number 11, and Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. So six times Jesus was shuffled and scourged throughout the night. Jesus was charged with several crimes. Now, I did not have room enough to put this on the bulletin, and so this is where you might need or want to make your own personal reference because you need to understand what his charges were, the charges that they brought against Jesus all throughout the night. The first one was blasphemy. They charged him with blasphemy. Second, they charged him with claiming to be the son of God. When the Bible says that they, that Jesus was creating a ruckus throughout all the regions, stirring up the people, they basically charged him with insinuating a riot. And riots. If you read the scriptures correctly, that we gave you just a moment ago, they also charged Jesus with forbidding the people to pay their taxes to give Caesar what was due to him. And the fifth charge that they brought against Jesus was him claiming to be the king of the Jews. And so in the six trials of Jesus, they tried him illegally six times. They brought five charges against him. Blasphemy, claiming to be the son of God, insinuating riots, forbidding people to pay their taxes, and for claiming to be the king of the Jews. Now, I want to give you, and this is where most pastors will not go. They won't take time to study it or they do not find it significant. But I believe that if we're going to talk about the six times that he was tried illegally and the charges that were brought against him, I think it's also important to know why these trials were illegal. Number one, because no trial under Jewish law, and Romans acknowledged this, no trial was to be held during the feast time, which indeed this was. Secondly, each member of the court was to vote, listen now, individually. How do you vote, sir? How do you vote, sir? How do you vote, sir? Every member 
of the court was to vote individually whether to convict the one that was charged or to acquit them. But Jesus was convicted by acclamation, which means Jesus was convicted on all five charges by all of the people simultaneously going into a ruckus. He's guilty, crucify him. And with one consent, when everybody raised their voice and said he is guilty, then they convicted him. And that was against their own laws. Number three, if the death penalty, which they were striving for, if the death penalty was given, a night had to pass before the death sentence was carried out. However, only a few hours passed before Jesus was nailed to the cross. Number four, and this is important, the Jews had no authority to execute anybody. That's imperative to know. Number five, no trial of any sort was to be held at night. But all of these trials were held before dawn from the time they took Jesus from Gethsemane to the last of the trials. And number six, the accused was to be given counsel or representation. Jesus had none. And number seven, the accused was not to be asked any self-incriminating questions, but Jesus was asked directly, are you the Christ? And Jesus had no reservation about speaking the truth. So there are seven reasons why Jesus was tried illegally six times during the night. Now, in our passage of Scripture this morning in Luke 23, we find in our text that the prophecy of Calvary was now becoming a reality. And by the way, the prophecy of Calvary goes back as far as Genesis 3.15. And it was declared by God himself that Jesus would have to die. And by the way, it's the first prophecy mentioned in scriptures about the Messiah having to die. Jesus, if you understand the scripture correctly in Genesis 3.15, the word explains that Jesus, the Messiah, the one to come, would have to bruise the head of Satan. And in that process, Satan would bruise his heel. That's the first prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And then from that place, all the way through the Old Testament, 4,000 years after that prophecy, the darkest hour in heaven was now taking place on the center stage of the earth. And let me remind you that there were several dark hours in heaven prior to this event. The first dark hour in heaven was when Lucifer, Satan, rebelled against God and led a third of heaven's angels away in a revolt. It was another dark hour in heaven when Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, had to leave the Father's side to come to this earth, being conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, born in Bethlehem's manger, 
It was the first time that the Son of God had ever been separated from God to carry out the plan of salvation. But I will tell you now that Jesus is hanging on the cross. This was indeed the darkest hour of heaven. The only begotten Son of God, the only begotten of the Father was now subjected to and now in the hands of evil, wicked men. And as we all know, the purpose of Jesus coming into this world, it was not to become a famous man. It was not to start a new religion. It was not to perform miracles. It was not simply to have a human experience. His purpose for coming is summed up in a very simple scripture. In Luke chapter 19, verse number 10, the Bible says, for the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. In other words, Jesus came to give us the plan of salvation. I'm glad that what we have in the word of God and the scriptures, this is not something of make-believe. Somebody says, well, I was just walking down the road one day and, and I just heard this voice or I found this word under a rock or this tree began to sway this way. I'm glad that's not how we know the gospel. The word of God. So Jesus came to, he came to give us verbally and personally the plan of salvation. There's instructions in this book on how to be born again. Jesus came to fulfill God's payment and justice for sin. Number two, he came to give the world a choice. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Bible says this, that it's not the will of the Father that any should perish, but that all may come to repentance. This is one of the greatest verses in the Bible where salvation is extended to everybody. Listen carefully. God's not playing eeny, meeny, miny, moe with human souls. God's not saying, well, you know what? Uh, I think you need to go to hell, and I think, well, you've been good enough to go to heaven. That's not the way God worked it out. For God so loved the world. In this scripture, the Bible says, it's not the will of the Father that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he came to give the world a choice, not only to seek and to save that which was lost, and that encompassed giving us the plan of salvation and to satisfy God's judgment and payment on sin. But number two, he came to give the world a choice. God doesn't force himself down anybody's throat or force himself into anybody's soul. He gives us a choice. Number three, he came to visibly declare the authenticity of who he was and to bear witness of the truth. In John 1.14, the scripture says this, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And number four here, if you're taking notes, the purpose of the cross, he came to give salvation to the world. In John 1, 11, the Bible says this, and he came into his own and his own received him not. And when his own people closed their heart to him being the Messiah, he graciously opened the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so today the gospel is open 
for whosoever will. The gospel is open to the Jew and Gentile. Now listen carefully. We all know this, that there was no red carpet welcome or celebration by the majority of the world when Jesus came. At his birth, listen carefully, there was no room for him in the inn. Shortly after his birth, Herod tried to kill him. He was rejected by his own people. And when he began his public ministry at the age of 30 years old, his enemies accused him of public disruption and blasphemy. Let me emphasize something. The world rejected him then, and the world by large rejects him now. It's the same thing. But keep this in mind, if you will, that this event right now before us, Jesus hanging on the cross, this event was seen in the mind of God before the foundations of the world. The cross, listen carefully, would escort Jesus to the climax of his divine mission and purpose for coming to this planet. And we cannot but allow our minds to reflect a little bit this morning on the cruel events of the cross as we think about what led up to this place. I think it's important for us to remember that in Gethsemane, Jesus willfully yielded himself into the hands of evil, wicked men. When Jesus was approached in Gethsemane, they did not take him by force. When they asked the question, or Jesus asked the question, whom seek ye? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I, I'm he. I am the one you're looking for. Keep this in mind. When those Roman centurions came into the garden led by Judas Iscariot, who, by the way, had just placed the kiss of betrayal on the cheek of Jesus saying, Hail, Master. When those Roman centurions came and began to tie Jesus, his hands, probably put a rope around his neck, and was dragging him like a dog through the streets to the house, to the palace of Annas, I want you to understand something. Just the mere thought in the mind of Jesus, just the blink of an eye, just with a spoken word, Jesus could have summoned 10,000 angels in Gethsemane, but he didn't. He willfully surrendered himself. He willfully gave himself to these Roman centurions and the reason for that is this, that the divine appointment had come. Do you remember in the earthly ministry of Jesus on numbers of occasions, he said, mine hour has not yet come. Mine hour has not yet come. People were trying to kill him and people were trying to do him wrong. And he kept reassuring the people, mine hour has not yet come. But here, he willfully surrendered himself because the divine time, the appointed time had come. And Jesus he placed himself in the position to endure the cross according to the scriptures for the joy that was set before him. And we cannot forget that after his betrayal in the garden, you have just followed me 
through the six illegal trials of Jesus, it was not only an emotional act of abuse with Jesus, but he physically was abused before he even got to the cross. Listen, the blood did not start flowing at the cross. The brutality that was unleashed upon Jesus started in these illegal trials all throughout the night. At one point, they brought Jesus to Pilate, and in the examination, Pilate said, and I can see him pacing the floor. He's thinking in his mind, what am I going to tell this mob? What am I going to tell these people? This man has done nothing wrong, nothing worthy of death. I don't know what to do. I don't find any fault in him. He stood before them and said that those exact words, I don't find any fault in him. In fact, he said, listen, it's your custom at this time of the year that I release a prisoner unto you. Let me release Jesus. Let me let him go. And they cried vehemently, no, crucify him. Let Barabbas go. If you're going to let anybody go, let this robber Barabbas go. The interrogation of Pilate didn't satisfy anybody. They demanded that Jesus be crucified, and they began to vehemently more, even so more, cry, crucify him. It didn't matter what other type of justice that they could have received. They only wanted Jesus dead, and they only wanted him out of the way. And so after his illegal trials, Pilate permitted, listen carefully, Pilate permitted the horrendous scourging hoping that the scourging would satisfy them. So what he did, he instructed the Roman centurion. He said, listen, we're going to beat this man half to death. And when we get finished with him, he'll be a filleted piece of meat. And these people will have sympathy on him and they will just forget about this whole thing and let him go. So he ordered the Roman centurion to do this. He said, let's get the cat of nine tails, a whip that has nine strands of leather upon it. The one doing the beating would select whether there was glass-type objects tied to the end of it, sharpened bones, materials that they used to make weapons with, all kinds of jagged ends on these nine strands of leather. And they took the cat of nine tails and they whipped the back of Jesus uncomprehendably and understand this it wasn't just a little thrashing 39 lashes on his back oh no friend they took the most muscular person that they had and this cat of nine tails was so long that when they drew their hand back and they lashed it upon the body of Jesus this thing would wrap around the body of those who are being punished or persecuted and then the mighty hand of the Roman centurion, the man that was full of strength, he would take the handle of that whip and he would jar it off of the body. Understand this. When Jesus got through of the cat of nine tails, some of his organs were physically exposed. That didn't satisfy them. After the cat of nine tails, they plucked his beard. He had human spittle dripping off of his chin. Once they got through with this, they beat him in the face. They had already filleted his back wide open. 
But then, according to the words of Isaiah, the prophecy that would come 750 years after the prophecy, Isaiah said this, that his visage would be so marred that nobody would know him. In fact, the scripture is Isaiah 52, verse number 14. Again, I give you the scripture. This was spoken 750 years prophetically before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem of Judea. The prophet said this, as many were astounded at the, his visage or his face was so marred more than any man and his form more than any sons of men. He was beaten filleted wide open on his back his naked body and then he was beaten beyond human recognition in his face then Pilate gave permission for them to put a crown of thorns upon his head and it wasn't just something from your little rose bush that you have around your porch these particular thorns that they made the crown of thorns with were two inches long and so when they put the crown of thorns on the brow of Jesus they shoved them down to the point where those thorns reached the bone of his skull they didn't stop there then they put the robe of mockery upon him and began to mock him. Then they led him down the Via Della Rosa. They led him outside the city gates. And I will tell you, this is a good place to say this because in the world today, there, there is a big difference between the Catholic faith and, and our practice of faith. Predominantly Catholics and various associations of that they believe that Jesus was crucified inside the city gates. And they, there's a place, there's a holy shrine there, and I've been to the Holy Land many times. I've taken many of you with me. I certainly pray and hope that we'll go again. I hope you go with me when we go again. We do not go to the church of the Holy Sepulcher where the Catholics believe that Jesus was crucified. And the reason for that, number one, I've been in it one time too many. It's almost like, a den of devils, the way that it is looking and the way they have it all fixed up, but it's impossible because that particular shrine church is inside of the city walls. And the Bible clearly teaches us that Jesus was crucified outside of the walls, outside of the city gates. We believe in the place of the skull, the place of Calvary, as the scripture says. And when you go there and you look at it, you can see the eye sockets, the nose, you can see the face of the skull. It's as the scripture declares. They took Jesus outside the city gates. They threw his filleted body down on two pieces of timber. They nailed his hands to the cross. They nailed his feet to the cross. And then once they did that, somebody had dug a hole. And then they began to raise the cross with the filleted body of Jesus upon it and slammed it down into that hole. Can you imagine the jarring of all of that when they jarred the cross and his hands? Can you imagine the flesh and, and the experience that his body was getting? not only with his hands, but also with his feet. And then when they raised Jesus on the cross, his holy lips began to quiver. He begins to open his mouth with sweat and blood mingling together. I, I can see this now. If you all let your mind's imagination and look into the scripture with the spirit of the Lord. Maybe 
you can see what I see. As Jesus now has finally been led to this place and his body is bleeding profusely. That's why I'm telling you, the blood did not start at the cross. It started way back in the illegal trials. And now he is bleeding profusely. I can see the Roman soldier as the quivering lips of Jesus begins to speak. And maybe the Roman soldier is saying this, everybody quiet because they're crying with a loud voice, crucify him, crucify him. Maybe the Roman soldier is saying to everybody, be quiet, be quiet. He's trying to say something. What is he saying? What is he trying to say? And Jesus begins to speak. One of them had said, if you are the son of God, come down and save yourself. When Jesus was on the cross and he was dying for my sins and your sins, when he began to speak these words, he wasn't crying for mercy. He wasn't crying for vengeance. When the blood is trickling down his brow, down his arms, down his body, he speaks these words of Luke 23, 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Now, this is important. I want you to look at this. This is incredibly important. For they know not what they do, and they parted his garment and cast lots. These are the very first words that Jesus spoke from the cross, and they're the words of forgiveness. Th these words go to the very heart of salvation. You know, it's sad, but let me sidebar this just for a moment, that many, many people have a problem with forgiveness. Maybe you know somebody like that that has a severe problem with forgiveness. Maybe, I don't know, it might be you listening today. It might be you here this morning. Many people have a problem with that. And usually when a person has a problem with forgiveness, they typically expose themselves. I mean, you hear it in their whisper. You see it in their conduct. You feel it in their attitude. You bleed from it in their self-righteousness where they just continually hold on to a grudge and will not let it go. Let me say this. If you're holding on to a grudge today, somebody did you wrong a long time ago, and certainly all of us have been wronged in our life. All of us have a past where we have maybe scarred memories. But listen, if you're holding on to a grudge today and you refuse to let it go, I want to give you the key to your shackles this morning. There are three things that I want to give you real quickly here that will help you if you're struggling with this thing of forgiveness. Please listen carefully. You do not have to forgive people because they deserve to be forgiven. Please understand that. You don't have to forgive people because they deserve to be forgiven. But number one, you forgive people to set your own self free. Because if you're holding on to a grudge of some sort, listen, it's you that's losing sleep. It's you that keeps your stomach in the knot. It's you that have nightmares. It's you that walk and pace the floor with, with animosity in your heart. Listen, when you forgive, you set yourself free. God's spirit will come in and he will give you joy. He'll give you peace. He will give you the ability to be like Jesus. 
Number two, you forgive people because what they did to you, you're very capable of doing the exact same thing to somebody else. Oh, not me, preacher. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And so if you want mercy to be shown to you, you must show mercy to others. And number three, because Jesus said this, if you don't forgive, neither will you be forgiven. I want you to see this verse. Now, if you have an NIV, you're in trouble because they took this verse out. But if you have a King James, look at this in Mark eleven twenty six. The scripture says this, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive you or forgive your trespasses. And so when Jesus spoke these words, they were spoken directly to God. And this is important. Here Jesus is in the spirit of prayer with all the agony and all the brutality that had been done to him. This is interesting because when Jesus began his public ministry, he began with prayer. In fact, in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized, look at this, and praying. This is when his public ministry began at the Jordan. The heaven was opened. Look at that. Now, three and a half years later, his ministry was ending. His ministry began with prayer, and now his ministry, his earthly ministry, is ending with prayer. And that's a wonderful example he left to us. He taught us in life how to pray, and he was teaching us in death how to pray. Here on the cross, he was practicing exactly what he had preached, to love and to forgive our enemies. I want to give you four points real quickly here. Four things that I see now in these words of forgiveness. I want you to notice a few of them. When Jesus spoke from the cross, number one, we see the fulfillment of the prophetic word. We see the fulfillment of the prophetic word. It was prophesied that on the cross, Jesus would become an intercessor. Isaiah said it this way, again, 750 years before Jesus was born in Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 12, he made intercession for the transgressors. And so for those who were crucifying him, Jesus was praying for their forgiveness. He made intercessions for them now, for them then, and he makes intercessions for us now as our high priest, as our advocate Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and according to the Word of God, He is ever living to make intercessions for us right now. Number two, Christ identified Himself with His people. This is important, and asked the Father to do the forgiving. Now, this is important for several reasons. This is a beautiful truth, a beautiful point. Stay with me here. This is something that you can get real good on your own without a lot of explanation. Jesus was asking the Father to do the forgiving. Father, forgive them 
for they know not what they do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let me ask you this. I wonder how many times in a day do we ask for forgiveness? Aren't you glad that the Lord doesn't act like some of us sometimes when we go to him and ask him to forgive us? I mean, aren't you glad that when we go to the Lord, he doesn't turn his back on us? Aren't you glad when we go to the Lord to ask for forgiveness, he doesn't get puffed up, he doesn't harbor bitterness, he doesn't fuel rumors of any sort? Thank God, when we go to him and ask him for forgiveness, how oft shall I forgive my brother? The word says seven times seven. No, 70 times seven. That means it never ends. That means when I'm sincere and I go to the Lord and I say, Father, I have royally messed up. I want you to forgive me. I repent of my sin. I'm so thankful that the word says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every ounce of it. Up until this point, let me bring this truth out to you. Up until this point on the cross when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Up until then, it had been Jesus who had been doing the forgiving. If you remember, and I want to show you something interesting, when Jesus walked on this earth, he said this in Matthew 9, 2. To the man sick with palsy, he said, Son, be of good cheer. Look at this. Thy sins be forgiven thee. He said this in Luke 7, verse number 48, to the woman who had washed his feet with her tears, he said, thy sins be forgiven thee. And then in John chapter 8, verse number 11, the woman that was found in adultery, he said to her, go and sin no more. But now, Jesus is hanging on the cross, blood streaming down his brow, and he says, and he asked the Father to do the forgiving. When he walked on the earth, he's the one that forgave. On the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. Now, there's something interesting here. You see, here's the reason why. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he took upon himself the sin of the world. He took upon himself my sin. He took upon himself your sin. He was the just who was dying for the unjust. And so Jesus on the cross he was dying as my representative. He was dying as your representative. He was dying as my vicarious substitute. He was dying as my propitiation for my sins and for your sins. So listen carefully. Jesus on the cross, he was no longer in the place of authority as he was in Bethlehem. He once again took himself in the lowly place, just like he was in Bethlehem's manger. He took himself in the lowly place of, a, of an animal's cradle. Here on the cross, he took himself in a lowly estate again with the sin of the world on his shoulders. Only God, only God could make forgiveness possible. Number three, we see the blindness 
of the human heart. The blindness of the human heart. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34 again, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Look at this. For they know not what they do. Now, that doesn't mean they were ignorant concerning what was happening. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew that they wanted Jesus dead. They knew that they wanted Jesus out of the way. But Jesus clarifies this. He says, Father, they know not what they do. What he meant by that was they have no idea as to the enormity of what they're doing. Now, you think about that just for a minute. Jesus was saying that they refused to believe that he was the Messiah, that he was the only begotten Son of God. And Jesus was saying, Father, they are blind to this truth. They, they don't realize that I am the one. I'm the promised one all the way back to Genesis. I am the one. I am the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. I am the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. They do not believe this. They do not know this. And Father, for this, forgive them. They do not know the enormity of what they're doing. And number four, quickly, and I ask our musicians to come forward. We see the depth of redeeming love. How far and how deep in the wretchedness of sin that God was willing to go through Jesus for our redemption. When he says in verse 34, Father, forgive them. Listen, they believed that he was an imposter. They believed that he was a phony, that he was a blasphemer. And so after man had done their worst, after they had done all that they possibly could, Number one, those people did not realize what they were doing, yet they still needed forgiveness. There's a classic verse of Scripture that says this in Romans chapter 5, verse number 8. Listen, listen to this now. Stay with me. But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners. Now think about it. Not when we evolved to be good, not when we became lovable, not when we became worthy. God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can somebody say amen? Number two, we have to understand that sin is never tolerated or accepted by God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Number three, no matter how bad your sin is, no matter what your sin is, you can be forgiven. In Mark 3.28, the word says, Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies, wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. Thank God Calvary covers it all. Thank God for forgiveness. I want to close by sharing the story I just 
recently read and was refreshed with. I was reading the story about a young man that had grown terribly weary in his heart and in his spirit because of a terrible sin that he had committed in the past. And he just, he just couldn't get by with it. He couldn't let it go. It, it was something constantly coming up in his mind. He'd asked the Lord to forgive him numbers of times. And every now and then he was oppressed and he was depressed. And he asked the Lord to forgive him over and over and over again. And let me say this, if, if that's what's happening to you, you there's something in your, in your past that you wish never happened. And you've done everything that you can do physically to make it right. And you've prayed to the Lord, listen, according to scriptures, he will forgive you. You don't have to keep reliving that. The word says he places our sins, our confessed sins in the depths of the sea. The Bible says he removes them as far as the east is from the west. So if you keep allowing yourself to be tormented by something way in the past, I promise you it's not the Holy Spirit coming to you, afflicting pain and turmoil upon you. It is coming from the depths of hell. And so this young man, weary, he wore himself out. He was draining himself emotionally. Spiritually, he couldn't progress he was just a wretched soul, fretting, crying, worrying about something he had done in the past. He was so bothered by it that he went to this precious lady in his church, and she was known throughout the church to be a prayer warrior in such a way that she could get through. Everybody knew that when this sister prayed, heaven moved, heaven got her attention, and and I don't minimize that because when we pray, listen, we get heaven's attention too. But this woman had the reputation of being a prayer warrior. I mean, she would really do it. She would, she would get down. I remember times that when we've had all-night prayer meetings here in our church. I'm talking about two people at this altar on their knees or in these pews before God for 24 hours. We prayed for specific things during specific times. And two by two, all night long, from 8 o'clock in the morning to 8 o'clock the next morning, people were at this altar praying. We know how to be a praying church. We've had people here praying. But this particular lady, she was known as the giant of the prayer world. She would fast. She would pray. She would weep. She would cry. She would agonize. And she had the reputation that when she got on her knees, heaven listened and so this young man troubled in his spirit. He just couldn't get past it. He went to this sister. He called her to the side in a private way, and he said, Sister, I'm having a terrible problem with something in my past. I just cannot get past it. He said, I need you to pray for me. Will you do that? And she said, Oh, yes, son. I'll be glad to do it. And then he says this to her. He says, If God in your praying reveals to you my sin of the past. If he tells you what I did and tells you how I can get peace from it, and she said, well, son, have you talked to him? Yes, I have, and I just can't get past it. Every time I turn around, there it is, and I worry myself sick over it. 
And he said, but if God tells you what my sin is when you pray, I'm going to know you really can get in touch with him. And if you can really get in touch with him, he will really tell you what to tell me. And he said to her, ma'am, will you do that? And she said, oh, absolutely, for sure I will do that. And so a few days goes by, he didn't get a telephone call. A few days more went by, didn't get a telephone call. So about two weeks later, he saw her in church and he said, sister, I'm pacing the floor, I'm losing sleep at night. I just want to know if you got in touch with him. And she said, yes, I did. And he said, what did he say? And she looked in his eyes and she said this, God told me that he cannot remember what sins you're talking about. And that boy fell on his face. He said, I asked him to forgive me. She said, son, he did. He placed them in the depths of his sea, the sea of his forgetfulness. He removed them as far as east from the west. He don't know what you're talking about. Rest like a baby. When we take our sins to the cross and we put them under the blood, the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice on the cross, the glorious resurrection guarantees us. Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. And we do have forgiveness. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.